or it can be precipitated by a divorce, death of a spouse, aging, illness. Um, sometimes um, one just awakens at the hour of the wolf, three or four in the morning, and one looks at oneself in terror and says, who in the world am I? What's going on here? Uh, those are nodules. Those are moments where the individual summoned to a very large question, who am I? And, and in service to what? Which are healthy questions, very healthy questions. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Eggshell Transformations, a podcast for intense people. My name is Imi, and I'm here with you on a journey. Today's episode is, on a personal level, deeply meaningful to me. Some time ago, I went through what I now know was a crisis of the soul. As always, I went and searched for answers in books and philosophies. And that was when I found Dr. James Hollis's work on Jungian psychology. Dr. Hollis is a Jungian psychoanalyst and the author of 16 books. His work is incredibly extensive and accessible. I bought one book after next and read everything I could get my hands on. Since then, Carl Jung's work has become a big part of my thinking and my work. As you can imagine, I am extremely excited to be able to speak directly with Dr. Hollis. In today's long conversation, we honed in on the meaning of what Jung calls the second half of life. According to Jung, the first half of our lives is very much about fitting in, adapting to social norms and conventions. But as we enter the second half of our lives, what has worked all these years no longer do? This is when we start to ask questions like, who am I apart from my roles? Who am I apart from my history? And who am I apart from my obligations? I specifically asked about things that I see again and again in emotionally sensitive and intense people, such as the conflict we face for being a natural non-conformist, the fear of being ostracized by the crowds, and the guilt we feel for breaking away from home. We talked about the burden of our parents' unlived lives. I directly asked James the question, are we responsible for our parents' happiness and well-being? Finally, we also discussed other Jungian concepts such as complexes. How Jungian psychology offers us unique ways to understand our psychological symptoms and how we can listen to our dreams. The materials in today's episode is denser than usual. But if you are a fellow seeker, I think you will benefit tremendously from what's coming. Now to my conversation with Dr. James Hollis. Hi, Dr. Hollis. Thank you very, very much for coming on to the XL Transformations podcast. It's an absolute honor to be with you. Um, as I've just in our little chat just before we clicked uh, recording, your work has been hugely influential and meaningful to me on a very personal level. Um, a few years back when I was going through some how should I call it, existential midlife crisis. Um, I really found solace in knowing that I wasn't the only person. And, and of course, I see um, similar themes around authenticity and belongingness, meaning of life, what it means to live an, an exempt life, as one of your book would um, suggest. I see it again and again in people that I work with and people around me. So I thought to have you on to be able to discuss various topics would be um, a great idea. Thank you. Privilege to be with you. Thank you. You are a Jungian analyst. I'm interested in many aspects of Jungian psychology and depth psychology, as I imagine many will be. So I can talk to you about many topics forever and we can be here until next week. So today I probably want to focus on something that... Uh, it's not very talked about. It's not that easy to find information on. And yet I see the similar struggle in a lot of people that I work with, which is the idea of what it means to live an authentic life um, around the middle passage or 
what you call the second half of life. Um, yeah. Would that be all right with you? Of course, of course. Sure. Great. And I'm sure these concepts are all related. And of course, mm-hmm. um, a per- living a personally meaningful life, we can't take ourselves outside of the, uh, we don't exist in a vacuum. So the systemic and what's going on in the world will inevitably come into that as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, I've, yeah. Well, I'll just start talking. Yes, and, please. Uh, we, ha- we have to remember from whence we began. Um, we were equipped initially with an internal guidance system called instinct. But we were tiny and vulnerable and dependent upon our environment and the circumstances into which we were born. None of us got to choose that family of origin or that particular time in history or that genetic inheritance or whatever. But because of that vulnerability, we all have to make adaptations and we have to fit into the world around us. And we develop what the British psychiatrist D.W. Winnicott called the false self, not false because we're hypocritical or, or, or feigning in some way, but adaptive rather than coming out of our natural selves. And so the purpose of the false self basically is to meet two needs, to manage anxiety and stress from that environmental encounter on the one hand, and secondly, get our needs met with the limited powers that we have available to us. So in time, we slowly, if you will, ratify and reinforce those, those reflexive responses to people. Because early on, we start making some early judgments about world and relationships and ourselves. Is the other trustable, untrustworthy? Uh, am I okay as I am, or do I have to adapt and fit in in some special way? Um, we we adopt stories out of that, too. These are more or less unconsciously formed stories, but they arise out of our need to try to make sense of our world. And so we get attached to our own stories. Yeah. So we bring those stories, some of which are conscious. This is what you can do, and this is what you can't do, and some of them are not conscious. And we we engage them uh, it, as we enter the world, and and we bring them with us. And so I've often thought of the purpose of therapy from midlife on as a kind of analysis of and critique of the stories that we've mm. been, you know, living and producing our patterns. Mm. Because none of us rises in the morning and says, "Well, today I'm going to do the same sort of stupid, counterproductive things I've done for decades." Mm there's a good chance that I will because of the power of those stories. Yes. Which is one reason why in the face of the, the world's demands, we see patterns. So, you know, the problem with the unconscious is it's unconscious. So we have to start with a tangible world, like mm-hmm. our behaviors and, and to see the patterns that are there and to realize, especially the ones that are not productive for us or mm-hmm. even hurtful to us or maybe others. And say, all right, but, you know, that's coming from something within you. The only person present in every scene of your life is you. So we have to hold you accountable for your behaviors and their consequences. But many of these stories, as I indicated, are coming from a place that you don't really know very much about. So we Mm -hmm. start with that tangible world and, and move backwards. Or we start with emotional states. If I'm doing all the right things, and yet... The energy is not there. I'm feeling depressed or mm-hmm. self-medicating or whatever the treatment plan may be. Um, then we have to say, okay, why is our psyche here autonomously withdrawn its approval and support for the places where we want to put our energies? Yeah. So, so. We, we begin to work with these things, and then, then it starts loosening up the material. And, and then a person, for the first time, may begin to look within and see, well, what are the engines of choice here? What are the search machines that are at work within me? And why these instead of something else? It's interesting. So really our feelings, if we're really feeling depressed or anxious, they really have important information embedded mm-hmm. in there about our lives. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you started with um, the, the, the end products of the behavior and the feelings, because that's where modern psychology is very much focusing on. You know, modern therapy such as CBT seems, in my opinion, limited when it comes to our soul's calling. Um, 
to read from one of your books, you said、um, any therapy that does not address the issues of soul must remain superficial in the end, no matter how much、um, symptoms alleviation initially provides.、Uh, palliation, sorry, of symptoms it initially provides. I mean, these. This is also my experience, where clients may get symptoms relief for a while, and then the problem returns, only in another form, or sometimes more rampant. What makes Jungian psychology or depth psychology unique when it comes to、um, its perspective on life and happiness, and even emotional intensity? Do you think? Well, one of the things we could say is that. Rather than try to suppress the symptoms, we we have to recognize that they are already expressions of psyche's disfavor. They are protests, if you will. So it makes sense for me to pay attention to why they've come. Not how quickly do I get rid of it, but why has it come? What's causing it, and what do I need to do to move beyond it? Not necessarily solve it, but move beyond it. As Jung pointed out once. It's not that we can solve our life problems, but we can grow larger than they are. There's a big difference there. We sort of outgrow those stuck places where our our behaviors are sort of grinding away in the same old, same old place. And underneath all of that, you have to respect the autonomy of the psyche. See, the the, the whole point of death psychology is to dialogue with the psyche. Yes, we're behaviors. Yes, we're cognitive processes. Yes, we're biological processes. But you put all that together, you still don't have the human being. The human being is the meaning-seeking, meaning-creating organism, and more people suffer from disconnects from meaning than any other single cause of human pathology. So we we have to address this question of meaning in a person's life, and we can put up with a lot of stress and hardship if we have meaning.、Mm-hmm. But take that away, and and life is unendurable in some way. Earlier, you mentioned repeated behavioral patterns. Are these related to complexes?、Um, sure. Yes, yeah. Sure. A complex is a term that Jung uses frequently, and I, I think about virtually every hour. And if I don't think about it, because I'm in one probably, <laughs> a, a complex is a charged cluster of history. We have them because we have charged, history. A charged cluster of history. Cluster of history of,、yeah. of an energy system of our history. So, a simple example. Let's say I touch hot iron as an infant, and I learn, oh, okay, that shiny object then is painful, so I stay away from that. And I might actually extend that to other shiny objects before I learn to differentiate more fully.、Mm-hmm. But some part of me is there forever, in some way, responding out of that history to a situation like that. Now, the good news about that is it could be protective to me. On the other hand, you can see how it begins to perhaps impose itself on new life situations, where it begins to, in a sense, show up in other areas of one's life.、Mm-hmm. Then you realize that complexes are really autonomous. We can't just will them away. Even we get to know that we have one. I mean, everybody has, let's say, an exam anxiety, or、right. you know, medical treatment anxiety, or dentist anxiety, or something like that.、Those、Is that a normal, complex? Certainly, they are certainly because if the first time you ever visited a dentist, you had a wonderful experience and and you know it was delightful to you, you'd have a positive、mm. complex.、Mm. People build up apprehensions around there again, some of which is conscious and some of which is not. So all of that energy has the power to be triggered by something in the outside, or has a certain kind of energy that can rise. You know how people could be in a mood state sometimes for days on end, even. Have no clue as to why they're feeling the way they are, or not even be aware of that. And that's when、the、they are caught around, in a complex. Absolutely, and then people、right. around them are saying, "What happened to so and so there?" Because they can tell the difference. So one is floating in some way in that cluster of energy. You define complexes as splinter personalities. So when we fall into that, we could suddenly be very infantile.、Mm, a very splinter、fearful. personality that you say. Splinter personality. Yes. Yes.、Yeah. That's Jung's term. So,、um, we we could, for for example, be responding in a very infantile way. We could be、uh, fearful, or we could be very compliant. We might say, "Why did I not object yesterday when such a, such a situation was going on?" Or, "Why didn't I speak up?" And you realize, well, that's when that history 
that said, beware, this is dangerous potentially for you, so keep your mouth shut, hide out, hope that it goes away. And then you realize later, well, I just undermined my own adult capacity here, my own adult standpoint. Yes. And that's when a complex has occurred. So it's probably when we collapse in a strange shame complex spiral when we do things we don't actually congruently want to do say things we later regret or have a strong emotional reaction that's not proportionate to the situation that's right yeah that's a key word there uh proportionate uh, one of the signs of a complex is that the amount of energy that's discharging is in excess of the situation's requirements mm. But when you're in it, it feels appropriate. You know, a person says, but I'm not angry. I'm not angry at you. You know, and everything they're saying is, is anger because they're caught in the sort of righteous um, energy of the complex at that mm. moment. I mean, if it's by its own meaning is unconscious, how can we deal with what lies beneath our knowledge and will? You know, the problem with the unconscious is that it's unconscious. Yes, that's why I said the problem with the unconscious is it's unconscious. Yeah. So um, our, our, our task is then to try to track the unconscious from the standpoint of depth psychology. That's why behaviorism and cognitive psychology useful in some circumstances as they are. Sure. Also mm-hmm. often don't get at the core of what a person's issues are because we, we, we have to pay attention to the feeling function. We have to pay attention to the energy systems in mm-hmm. a person. We have to pay attention to their dreams. Mm. For example, if you reach 80 years old, you will have spent six entire years of your life dreaming, which is extraordinary based on laboratory research. And that's an extraordinary amount of activity by the psyche. And the human psyche doesn't waste energy. Mm. It's serving a purpose. And if we can somehow tap into that and engage that in conversation then we began to find, well, there's another sensibility within me, another wisdom, if you will, yeah. an observant other, and it's um, commenting on my life. And um, it would make sense to pay attention from time to time. Yes. I mean, this is probably not a divergence from my core topic, but I am hugely interested. How does Jung think of dreams? What? what? I know it's well, different from Freud. Um, sure. Sure. Uh, Freud tended to see dreams as pathological uh, yeah. products, that they were, in a, in a sense, representing whatever was forbidden by day or repressed, so it had to seek its expression. And sometimes there's truth to that. There's no mm-hmm. question about that. But Jung saw it as part of the developmental uh, self-healing system. And, and there's no such thing as a bad dream, because we may not, from an ego standpoint, like the dream. Yeah, but um, it's it's all part of psyche's effort to work something up and out and to deal with it. Mm. So dreams are always moving us towards greater awareness, greater assimilation of those energies, and I think inviting us into a partnership, uh, a kind of dialogue with our our own journey, which is a larger conversation than we could have between ourselves and the external world, because in a way. The child is close to it, remember, but the power of the world takes us away from that internal conversation. So this is about engaging in a deeper conversation around the meaning of your own life journey. Mm. Run the risk of oversimplifying the process. Would there be a quick um, tip on a thing that our audience could do if they want to start paying more attention or to converse with their dreams. Cause I have lots of very vivid dreams mm-hmm. and I wake up remembering them. And I know about the idea of a dream journal. You don't just open a dictionary to know that, you know, this means this or a means that, but That's right. I then don't really know how to converse or use the information in the dream. Well, first of all, most people say I don't dream or I never remember them, but they do. Uh, Again, sleep research tells us we average about six dreams per night. That's a lot of activity. So you do have to have some notepad there. The first thing you do when you awaken, whether it's in the middle of the night or in the morning, is to say, what was I thinking? What was I dreaming? I myself have often thought, oh, I was just thinking that. And I realized I was talking to someone who's now deceased, you know, or third grade teacher. And I realized, oh, that was a dream. 
write it down in as much detail as you can, and then you come back to it. And you're right, the dream dictionaries usually are not that valuable because mm -hmm. if you dream of your grandmother and I dream of my, my grandmother, they're different <laughs> grandmothers with different experiences. Indeed. And therefore, the key is your associations, what emotional material begins to come up as you reflect on why that particular figure or image occurred in your dream. Mm. The, the dreamer's personal associations are far more important than anything the analyst has to say about it because that's the key to the private symbolic system of that individual. And, as, and the more you talk about it, because it, at first dreams can be frightening or puzzling or opaque or simplistic. We say, oh, that's a silly dream. I know why I dreamt that. The more you reflect on it, you have to ask, first of all, why would my psyche consider this important enough to pay attention to it and to comment on it? Because if it's that simple, I already know that. But this is trying to tell me about there's more energy attached to this than you thought there was in the first place. And what's fascinating, many times in analytic sessions, we'll spend our entire time on a, perhaps a single dream. And the more we work at it, the more you can begin to see something lightening yeah. and coming to the surface, floating to the surface. Yeah. In fact, that's what the etymology, the Greek word for analysis, mm. meant was to stir up from below, mm. like a riverbed, to see what comes to the surface. Mm. And Jung felt that one of the primary functions of dreams was compensation, meaning our conscious life pushes us one direction. and We get one-sided. We're rewarded for that. We're paid for that. Or we, at least we're adaptive in doing that. But on the other side is the whole rest of our personality. What happens to it? Mm. And it pathologizes. Because mm. one thing I didn't quite mention before is we take symptoms seriously because they are expressing the disfavor of the psyche. It's not approving as to what's happening to us from outside or what we're choosing and the consequences which follow from that. Mm. And the etymology of psychopathology, pathos is Greek for suffering, logos expression, psyche, soul. So you put it together. Psychopathology means the expression of the suffering of the soul. Oh, wow. I never put them all together like that. Yes. And the minute you put it like that, then you realize, oh, we're dealing with this human being in an existential setting, as you Indeed. said. Mm. And we have to address the meaning issues of that individual. What does it mean to be you? What does it mean that this, what is this suffering asking of you? What, what has brought this to you? And, and what are the responses that your own psyche are demanding of you? Those are different kinds of questions rather than how can we sort of fix this? Yeah, yeah, great. So perhaps we should come, we could come back to the idea of the true self for self, which is very much um, what I want to key, key is the core theme of our chat. For lots of my audience, the conflict between the conformist society approved self or the parents approved self and their true self seems to be a perennial struggle. I mean, many of them probably felt very different, like a rebel um, from a very young age, and they often feel more passionate and sensitive than others. And yet that side of them seemed to have gone into hiding. Either it's because of some kind of trauma in their childhood or when they were a teenager, they got shamed repeatedly. And so even after many years of trying, they still struggle to reclaim their most passionate, intense self and feel, actually feel safe in the world as they are. Here is a, one of my favorite quotes from you, if I could read it. Um, and I think it's just so liberating. It says, to become a person does not necessarily mean to be well-adjusted, well-adapted, approved by others. It means to become who you are. We are meant to become more eccentric, more peculiar, and more odd. We are not meant to fit in. We are here to be different. We're here to be individual. And I think a lot of my audience would feel would find a lot of solace in hearing that. Well, I hope so. Um, really, two of the biggest questions in the second half of life is, first of all, permission. As you were suggesting, we learn early. Mm -hmm. Life is conditional. You have to meet the conditions. 
And when you meet the conditions, you're responding to that out there rather than arising out of something that is true for you. So that's where that wedge, that split occurs. And when that happens, it, it gets deep into the point that we lose permission to feel what we're really feeling, desire what we desire for our life, and to take action toward it. Second task is the recovery of a personal authority. Again, we had it when we were young because it was called instinct, but personal authority means at any given moment, there's a rush of messages running through us, um, heavy, heavy traffic inside of each of us. Some of those messages are overt and, and clear, like get to work on time, do this, do that, et cetera, et cetera. Some of it is covert. It's old messages buried from our experience. And in there, there's a third category of messages that are coming from the deep self. That is to say, from my own, own natural truth. And it's anguishing because it is oppressed in so many ways. It's seeking its own expression. Now, this is not about narcissism or self-absorption. It's simply about respect for the individual soul. That's quite a different matter. Mm. And that's a humbling process. In other words, this is not narcissistic. It's actually humbling. Yes. To do this work. What do I need to learn about myself to live more authentically? And that's not necessarily going to make my life easier or conflict free. It's perhaps going to make it tougher. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll have to look at my relationships uh, a, a bit more rigorously. Maybe I have to check some of the patterns in my life. Maybe I'll have to face my fears and step into a new place in my life. So the, the personal authority involves two basic things, a kind of discernment that goes on, sorting and sifting, sorting and sifting on a daily basis. Where's this coming from in me? In other words, it doesn't matter so much what I'm doing. It's where's it coming from inside of me? Can you give if us I think an example? Good, well, if I, if I let's, let's just say I'm, you know, engaged in a certain kind of behavior that I can e easily rationalize as caused by the situation or even coming from a good motive. But maybe it's coming from codependence, fear of conflict, fear of stepping out and, and being exposed and vulnerable. And therefore, it's not necessarily coming from a good place. So sorting through the traffic is task one. But then finding the courage to live it over time, that's, that's the hard part, yeah. which means that one sometimes has to pull away yeah. from some of the structures and some of the relationships one's been involved in. Not, again, out of selfish motive, quite the contrary, but simply saying my continued investment here is psychologically costly. Mm. Now, we, when we do that, we incur, as Jung pointed out, a certain kind of debt obligation. You then have to be accountable for what you find and, and engage in yourself, because that's what you have to bring back to the collective. In other words, I can't be any better partner. I can't be any better parent. I can't be any better citizen than the person I am in relationship to myself. Wherever I'm undeveloped, fearful, codependent, shut down, living a small life, that's what I'm bringing to others. Mm. So I, I, I have a moral obligation to bring more of a human being, a fuller human being, to all those relationships, That's a which really is why our, our contribution is to others. Yeah, yeah. No, I, it's a really good point that it's not about narcissism, because I know Jung used to, and perhaps you can expand on what he meant by individuation. So now he uses that phrase to describe a process of us reclaiming our authentic self, perhaps. And yet, when people hear individuation, they confuses it. They confuse it with individualized, individualized mm -hmm. say culture or mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, or or individualism. Individualism. Or, you know, for sorry. The yes. it, for the yes. sake of it, you know, it's kind of like teenagers trying to show how independent I am, and we all dress alike, kind of thing. You know, mm. they adopt each other's habits. But, <laughs> you know, it's it's actually about a service. Ironically, a service to being capital B. I don't want to sound grandiose here, but it's like you have to ask the question, why are we here? Especially in the second half of life, after we've served many of our social functions, perhaps we've reproduced the species, perhaps we've formed relationships, perhaps we've engaged in a work, work uh, world and so forth. 
So why are we still here? Then you have to ask a different question. There's a question in the first half of life that all of us confront is, what does the world want from me? And can I mobilize enough response to meet it and deal with it? You know, the second half of life is what wants to enter the world through me. That's where your personhood, your talents, your interests, your enthusiasm, your capacities are called upon. But what if in your culture or your family that was not acceptable? Uh, then you have that tremendous collision of force fields within you. That's what produces that splitting historically that was called neurosis. And we're all neurotic because it has nothing to do with neurology. It has to do with being caught between competing agendas, the social claim upon us and the claim of our own nature upon us. Yes. And the more divergent they are, the deeper the wounding, the greater the pathology. There's a splits in us. Mm. And, and in fact, what's, can I? Can we just come back to, you know, the second half of your life, which is the title of one of your books, and it's very much what we're talking about. But what is your definition of the second half of life? Does it have to be chronological? Can no. you know there are lots of old souls, very very wise young people amongst us nowadays. Can we be sure. going through a midlife crisis in our twenties or thirties? Well, yes and no. <laughs> First of all, I, I would prefer to use the word passages here. Passages, yeah. We go through multiple passages in our lives. And a passage occurs when you obviously transition from one stage to another. But sometimes that's prompted by internal developmental uh, obligations, our own nature seeking its expression. And sometimes it's brought upon us by external events. So throughout history, people have been mindful of passages, and traditional cultures often had rites whose purpose was to support individuals in that process. Those have pretty much disappeared, so individuals are thrown back upon them themselves, and this process then often has to come on, occur unconsciously and, and not in a, in a very healthy way, perhaps. But uh, what I call the second half of life is not a chronological event. It's when you are radically obliged to start asking questions like, who am I apart from my rules? Who am I apart from my history? Who am I apart from my various obligations, which may be very fine obligations? But, but then you begin to ask the question of meaning. And, and the, we stand then in relationship to something larger than us, to some kind of mystery. Why am I here in service to what? What energies am I supposed to embody and bring into this world? That's, again, that's humbling. That's even potentially terrifying. Yeah. He said once in one of his very homey metaphors, um, we all walk in shoes too small for us. Because mm. stepping into our own shoes is, is a daunting task yeah. at times. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes this will be precipitated by, for first of all, Often it occurs in midlife, chronologically, for a couple of reasons. One, by that time, we will have lived for our first foray into what we'll call adulthood, maybe the first adulthood. We may think we've left our parents behind, that world behind, but then we realize we've created a whole different set of complica complications. And so you now have a history to reflect upon, which an 18-year-old doesn't yet, perhaps. But when you're 40, you have some history. Secondly, you've probably had that time, by that time some maturation of the ego strong enough to bear it. Many years ago, I was in acad academia, and I left it because I got tired of talking to 18-year-olds. Nothing wrong with being 18. It's just that I realized I couldn't have a conversation about certain kinds of matters at that stage because it was not part of their field of experience. Yeah. But if I met them at 40, there's a whole different person to talk to. And then you say, all right, well, I have to, to, to sort of look at this, right? So that's the sort of naturally occurring crisis or, or passage that we hit. Why am I here when I've done all the right things as best I could do? Or it can be precipitated by a divorce, death of a spouse, aging, illness. Um, sometimes um, one just awakens it the hour of the wolf, three or four in the morning, and one looks at oneself in terror and says, who in the world am I? What's going on here? Uh, those are nodules. Those are moments where the individual summoned to a very large question, who am I? 
and, and in service to what? Which are healthy questions, very healthy questions. And they will, you know, when we're young, we want to answer those forever. I'm going to marry the right person. I'm going to have the right career. My, my life's going to unfold in this very predictable way. And you think, well, good luck with that. Once in a while it happens, but most cases people run into some bumps on that highway. And then you have to sort of stop and say, all right, right. Well, this, this takes me back to the drawing board. And that's when people can perhaps come into therapy. And uh, it's, it's a healthy encounter because it does invite a new level of accountability because that's what this is all about in the long run is I am accountable. Even for those parts of me that are unconscious, I can't afford to say, well, just because I wasn't aware of it doesn't mean I, have, I don't have any responsibility for it. Yeah. No, I, I do. What spills in the world comes from me. I'm accountable for it. It's that daunting existential dilemma of when, when you have the freedom and the autonomy to choose, you also have the responsibility to bear the consequences Absolutely. of what you Absolutely. choose. Yeah. Sure. Sure. And I guess because of how daunting that task is, some people would just not respond to the summon and stay asleep. So I guess mm -hmm. my next question is, does everyone necessarily go through a passage? Or are some population more prone to questioning and examining the meaning of their lives? Can someone just stay asleep all their life? Well, absolutely. Uh, in the 19th century, Soren Kierkegaard uh, talked about a person who was shocked to find his um, name was in the morning obituary column of the newspaper. He hadn't realized he died because he hadn't realized he'd been here. <laughs> and yeah, there are people who dream their way through their lives and never mm -hmm. question what's going on. And, and sadly, uh, a lot of people, frankly, have been defined by the powers around them. Everything from slavery to socialized roles and so forth that sort of define who you are and limit your capacities. Those, those are horrific examples of the impact of the external world upon the soul of a child. And history is replete with that. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, you know, there, there are moments when these things break through. So do we go through passages? We all do. But if a person's asleep, that person's not attending it. Mm -hmm. That's why they'll keep sort of trying to impose the understandings and the behaviors of the previous passage on a new stage of their journey and wonder why things don't go so well. Oh, I see. So they keep doing the same thing, hoping for a different result. Sure, which is one of the definitions of insanity. Insanity, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, on that, which is on the all the confines of pressure that keeps us asleep, one of them would be our parents' unlived lives, as Jung famously say, that our parents can make us live out their unlived lives for them. I, if, if possible, can you expand more on this and maybe give us some common examples in your many years of clinical experience? How do people get hold back by their parents' spoken and unspoken expectations? Well, first of all, think who our primary models are about how to live in this world. I mean, we're exposed as tiny and impressionable children to these giants around us. They are our first and most intimate relationships. We will forever carry the various messages or stories that arise out of those experiences. That doesn't mean they dominate, but they're always going to be present. You can never ignore them. So, you Ouch. know, where they're stuck, I will have a tendency to be stuck as well. Mm. Or I'll have to be spending my life trying to get unstuck. Anything but like my mother or any yes. my father's life. You see, well, I'm still being defined by something other rather than coming out of my own self. There, there's that issue of not yet having permission for my own journey. So, uh, or, or thirdly, we're, we're out there trying to sort of treat the problem, solve it without even understanding what it is we're dealing with. Like it could be a life of distraction, a life of self-medication. Uh, or if you're really troubled, you could become a therapist and work with other people with that <laughs> problem, you know. Thanks. So, well, I mean, you know, we, we know that in the profile of professional caregivers, whether they're clergy or nurses or therapists or whatever, they often were very gifted and or sensitive children yes. in the family of origin. And, and they perceived and experienced on a daily basis the instability 
of the atmosphere in which they found themselves. And they began, even as children, making certain adaptations. One learns to keep her mouth shut. Someone else acts out. Someone else gets the message, I need to somehow fix this. Absolutely. And so I would say probably in 90% of professional caregivers, there is a history of, of troubled human relationship. Mm. Now, for some of them, that's their true calling. And for others, they're pushed into that because of that kind of, you know, identification with their uh, in, environment. And that's one of the things that will lead out to um, burnout and depression with, within them as, as well. Because it's not congruent to their soul. They're out just acting out so complex. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. In other words, it's, it's a kind of almost assignment history has given me. Mm. And, and not, as you said, congruent with, with the terrain of my own soul. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a great reminder that trying to rebel against a parental doctrine is also a way of being controlled by it. I don't think a lot of people think of it that way, where I'm trying my best to never be like my mother. It's actually another way of being trapped. Absolutely. Mm. It's almost as if a person in broad daylight is walking outside with an umbrella. Yes. You know, yes, yes. And you don't know it because there's this invisible, um, um, you know, parasol above your head. But to step out from under that is to step into your own life. It's so but funny. I can't do you that unless I realize that. Yeah, it's funny you, you said that. My therapist once um, gave me a really witty quote, a uh, question, which was um, it takes some time to let it sink in, which is can you take an umbrella out when it's raining? even when your mother told you so. Mm-hmm. I yes. found that so clever and I really resonated with it because I used to be that teenager. So I'm just going to go out and, you know, brave the rain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Well, that speaks to the question of, again, it's not so much what I do in terms of my choices, but where is it coming from inside of me? That's Indeed. the point. So to you open the umbrella or not to open the umbrella, where is that coming from? Is that a response to getting wet? Or is that somehow rebellion or service to an old complex cluster yes. of history? Yeah. You know? And I guess that answers the question, how do we deal with these things that are unconscious? How do we even know that we're acting out of parental expectations? Well, that's an excellent question. And usually when people come into therapy, it's because there's been some pattern that's problematic and has gotten them into trouble with themselves and or others, first of all, or they're being haunted from within by, you know, troubling dreams or depression or whatever the case may be. Mm. Well, again, that's tangible. And Mm. we can't deal with the unconscious directly by definition. But you can say, all right, now we have to ask, why is this common and what could be its possible motives? And, and then to say, let's say there's a pattern in one's life. Again, as I su- suggested earlier, we don't rise and say, I'm going to do the same stupid things, but we will do it because there's a, a complex that has a certain autonomy of energy within us. Mm-hmm. So we can ask ourselves, all right, now what kind of energy or internalized message, if you will, can produce a pattern like this? And you start exploring that until you begin to get a, a feeling and again, an opening of a dialogue with that kind of um, unconscious material intrapsychically. Yeah. And one begins to realize, well, you know, it is possible to dialogue with the unconscious. There's something there that's wanting to break through to us. And, you know, that's why I said symptoms are, are one of the clues of the psyche expressing its, you know, if, if I go to a doctor with a fever and a sore throat and so forth, you know, that's my body telling both of us something important and that Indeed. leads us to an exploration yeah. well that's true for psychological symptoms as well yeah yeah our psyche is not against us it's seeking two things our growth and our healing of that yeah. i'm convinced and it's always talking to us nudging us either in terms right. of in, in ways of a bad feelings or an, a migraine headache it's always nudging us towards authenticity mm-hmm. yeah that's right um just going back to that whole thing of people living their parental expectations without knowing, I think many people have a sense of it or as their therapist nudge them to think about things in that direction. They go, oh yeah, maybe my parents are a little overbearing. But then immediately they get haunted by the sense of guilt and 
betrayal, as though they are doing this very, very bad thing, or some really deep-seated feeling of the fear of being ostracized, exiled, abandoned, would immediately surge. They may not be able to name it that way, but from my perspective, I can often see it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, what you're describing, well, what you're describing, though, is the exploration of that territory alone begins to trigger those complexes. Yeah. Because as a child, you're absolutely needful of their approval and support. You don't want to cross them because they can be punitive or they can abandon you either way. And, you know, as a child, you learn, I am utterly at the mercy of that need. Mm-hmm. Well, even though you're a full-fledged adult, let's say, realize after all these years, that field of energy gets, gets activated. It's not that you're, you've done something wrong. It's an honest question. It's not that you've betrayed anything. It's that you've activated a field of anxiety. The feelings of guilt and shame and betrayal are secondary protests against the anxiety. What's, what makes us uncomfortable is the anxiety. Mm-hmm. And the anxiety is really the primal threat of the loss of the necessary other. And this is what keeps people attached even to very toxic relationships. You know, we've all known people, for example, who stay in terrible relationships, and you wonder why. Well, because at some level, dealing with the anxiety that leaving it will generate is even worse. And so they're terribly stuck in that situation. As reductionistic as it sounds, we always have to ask ourselves, underneath all of these behaviors that we've identified as troubling and problematic is a defense against anxiety. Hmm. What happens if you don't do it? And then suddenly the world of consequences start rising and that shuts the person down. Hmm. And that, that dialogue is often so attached to those complexes. There's been a veto power from the complex before one's even particularly made a decision. You just don't go there, so to speak. And that's how we stay stuck. So how do they go there? Well, look, the issue of stuck places is significant. I've had lots of workshops around the world. Mm. One of the questions I've asked people, and this is often in a journaling workshop where people would start writing a response, is where are you stuck? And it usually doesn't take, nobody ever asks me, what do you mean stuck? And, And people start writing about it within 60 seconds, which tells us we know so readily where we're stuck. So then the obvious question is, why is, it get so, why is it so difficult to get unstuck? And, and the reason is, as I said, getting unstuck disturbs the force field of energy in the basement, so to speak, mm. that you will have to face when you get unstuck. So let's say a person has a significant problem, with, let's say, of overeating or in self-indulgence in, in, in some way. You have to say, all right, well, the obvious thing is you just don't do that. Quit. Okay. But that, then the resistance comes in. Why? Because then what will I have to face? Indeed. What is that behavior protecting me from? Loneliness? So protecting me from, which is very understandable. We don't judge that. We, we have sympathy for that. But we also mm. realize it's costly. Mm. Is it protecting you from conflict? Yeah. What would you be doing with your life if you weren't spending your energy there? You see? Ultimately one has to go through the anxiety to get to the other side. I think it was Winston Churchill once who said, when you're in the middle of a difficult forest, the only thing you can do is keep walking. Yeah, yeah. And you have to go through some anxiety to get Mm -hmm. to the other side of whatever that issue is. But that has the power typically to shut people down, which is why they remain stuck. Mm. And yes, I think that's what you call a meaningful or authentic suffering rather than sure. the suffering you have by trying to not suffer. That's exactly right. No, Jung said neurosis is the flight from authentic suffering, mm. which is, as we see, not sparing us from suffering. Just saying no. your suffering is either going to be authentic or inauthentic. Mm. That's the choice. Mm. Now, you don't hear that from most schools of psychology. They're talking about let's get rid of suffering. Well, good luck with that. Yes. Suffering comes with the human condition because yeah. life is difficult and then you die. You know, have a nice day. So the, the key is, is the suffering you're going through, psycho-spiritually speaking, enlarging mm. or is it diminishing? 
Indeed. Often put it this way, in every choice in your life, in every relationship, in every commitment you have, does this make your life larger, psychologically speaking, or does it make it smaller? You usually know the difference between the two. Mm. You might be afraid of asking that question because you may not like the answer. But the answer is being addressed by your psyche. That's why these protests called symptoms come. Yeah, yeah. I do often say to people, which, you know, I didn't say this, I read it somewhere, but depression is trying to not be sad. Um, mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Well, another way of looking at depression is why is my psyche autonomously withdrawn approval and support from the places where my ego and my complexes have been investing that energy? And I have to then ask a question, well, where would the psyche put it? Which, Sorry, can you that, say that a bit more? So our, our psyche is withdrawing energy. Yes, yeah, that's what depression is. It's, it's, I mean, there are different kinds of depression. Sure. For example, there's a reactive depression, outer loss. It's wholly appropriate and yes. only problematic if it interferes too long and too large a way in a person's life. But uh, what we're talking about is your standard garden variety depression. And I think many, most of us walk around with pockets of depression in us at all times. Mm. We're not depressed, we're functional, but we have pockets of depression because there have been losses. There have been places where we're at odds with ourselves. But the question then is, why has the psyche autonomously withdrawn its approval and support for the places mm. where I'm putting my energy, investing right. my energy? I hear you now. And then, then you begin to realize there can be a reorientation of values. Mm. And you mm. have to ask the question, where would the psyche want it? Well, the psyche ultimately wants it in terms of feeding it feeding it the necessary energy that is self-healing as opposed to continue to uh, sort of ratify the splits that we all carry. And then you have to ask, well, what, what would it wish my energy to be investing in? That's a different kind of question. And that, that repositions the ego. It says, you know, I'm not necessarily the, the boss here. I, I'm, I'm responsible for the interface with the external world, but I have to sort of examine where all this stuff is coming from inside of me. Because if we live in service to that, mm. it, it will overcome so much of that inner discord. And again, this may or may not be supported by our environment. That's why right. fitting in, which is what a child learns is necessary, mm. in later life may be too costly. You can't afford to keep doing that because the price of that yes. is the price of a, a loss of meaning and a loss of relationship with your own soul. Yeah. Yeah. And on that topic, actually, we're almost there, but this is such a personal and yet meaningful question to me. Um, for many people, and for, from what I've known about you and hear some of your personal story you shared elsewhere, there are many people who are seekers at heart. And for them, not breaking away from their home, their origin where they're from, the little the, the hometown that they're from, is it means a soul death to them. And they knew it from a very young age. They have some sense of knowing that they needed to leave to forge a path of their own and to expand their consciousness. But this is really not an easy path, especially when you're a younger person and or mm-hmm. you know, this is this could be a conflict way into your thirties and forties. And other people may criticize them for being selfish and they may feel guilty for leaving people behind, like leaving their parents behind, leaving their siblings behind, leaving their old friends behind. They may feel like they're being arrogant, aloof. Is there any kind words or advice you would give to someone who feel haunted by this guilt that I call the, I call it the break away guilt? Mm-hmm. Well, Think about the guilt that it comes if you've lived in bad faith with your own soul. Yes. You use the cliche of being on your deathbed and reflecting on your life, and you ask the question, did I live my journey as best I could with all of the mistakes and screw-ups we have along the way? Did I live my journey? Did I take the risk to try to be who I am in this world as it is, over which I have very few powers? And, you know, we know the answer to that question almost automatically. You don't even have to ask it. So there's, there's a tremendous burden if you don't do that. 
But it's also true. That's why I said, Jung himself said, you incur a certain kind of debt obligation when you leave. And you have to come back into the world at some point. This is not about isolation. It's re-enter the world, but as a more evolved person. Now, not everybody's going to stand there and applaud. Because the purpose of a parent is in some way to love and support and give as much capacity to that child in order to live their journey. Not to come back and say, take care of me, for example. I'll take care of me to the best of my ability. But, you know, live your journey. So, you know, we know, I mean, one of the big tasks that I talked about in the last book was, um, you know, we have to free our children from us because um, it's, it's rare that a parent doesn't impose upon a child. I want that child to endorse my values, you know, have the same politics, religious values that I have. Um, and, and not go too far because, you know, I may need them as I get elderly, et cetera, et cetera. Those are, there's understandable motives, but they're also narcissistic and they're not about loving a child. You mm. can't say that's loving a child as the other. Mm. We have to say this child's a mystery who passed through my body and my history en route to their own journey. Yeah. Yeah. And if I'm a good parent, I do everything I can to support that. Mm. You know, I, I say to my children who are full adults, of course, now, um, you know, I call them each once a week, see how their lives are going. I'm an email away. They know how to get in touch with me. I, I'm willing to share an opinion if they want one. But but normally speaking, it's basically saying, you know, terrific. Um, I'm here for you. Yeah. After all these years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, there's uh, this wonderful poem by um, oh, Khalil Gibran on, on our children. You know, they, they, he likens it to parents being the arrow or, or the ball, and then the children, once, yes. they're, once they're in the world, they're doing their own thing. So yes. let me just ask a really straightforward question. Are we mm-hmm. responsible for our parents' happiness and well-being? Of course not. No, they are. They are. They are. <laughs> I don't expect my children to do that. I mean, I can't say that as a young parent, I wouldn't have had the same kind of motives too, but I've done everything I could to make that conscious and to lift that off of them through the years. I'm responsible for my happiness and well-being, not not them. And um, when you see that, you realize this is the unlived life of the parent. If I'm living my journey, why am I going to be dumped? Why would I dump it on my children? When I do dump it on the children, it's because I'm not living my journey. I'm not being responsible to my own soul. So that's an unintended confession of my abrogation of the summons to my own personhood here. So that's that's why it's so critical. And, of course, that sours a relationship. Yeah. I mean, how many adult children look forward to seeing their parents and having conversations with them? Mm. And, and how many dread it? Because yeah. there's always this hidden agenda, or not always hidden agenda, that's there. I mean, when I ask if we're responsible for our parent, parents' happiness and well-being, we laugh as though the answer is obvious. But actually, I think in many parts of the world, it's not that obvious. It's sometimes very hard for people to draw the line between, you know, in Chinese culture, what we call filial piety. Mm-hmm. Or sure. loyalty, or love, or dysfunctional codependency—it's—it's it's, right. it's the line between love versus codependency. Sometimes can be really fine in many places in the world. Sure, sure, and of course that that world had an enormous amount of social cohesion. Yeah, and much of it was uh, of a time and place in which travel and that, uh, you know information from the world was not available. Yeah. But I've had clients from traditional cultures in, in, in the East uh, in the past, and this has been a big internal struggle. Indeed. And, and in many cases where their parents are still trying to tell them in their 30s and 40s what basic decisions to make with their lives. And mm. I've, I've said to each one of them, you know, so this is, a, this is a time when you as an adult have to make that decision. But again, that conflict inside is, is tremendous. Yeah. And I appreciate that. That's that's a cultural complex. That's when we get from our tribe, so to speak. And it's very powerful. And when it prevails, it will shut a person down. That's not love of a child. That's mm-hmm. that's oppression. And and when you break from it, you pay for it. 
But if you don't break, you pay for it pay in quite a different more. way. Indeed. Even more, as yeah. we said. Well, thank you so much, Jim, for this really enlightening conversation. Um, I'm just aware of time and I want to be respectful of um, mm-hmm. your offering. I know that you have got a new book coming out. We have talked a lot about the intra-psychic side of things. Um, this new book of your, yours called In, In Between Worlds? It's Living Between Worlds. Living, living Between yeah. Worlds, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And yes. subtitle is Finding Personal Resilience and Changing Times. And it's talking about how history around us, of course, is changing in so many profound ways. And, and how does an individual find an internal compass and, and points of guidance within to navigate the world out there where the old maps don't apply anymore? Um, and then secondly, the intrapsychic changes that we've been talking about. So it's, it's about finding guidance and continuity in times of change, whether external or internal. How incredibly timely. Well, it is. I didn't know two years ago when I was writing it that what was headed our way, and yes. including the, the virus and so forth. And, mm. and by the way, the, the sequestering around the world that the virus has produced has thrown a lot of people back upon themselves yeah. in, a, in a different way. Fewer distractions. You yeah. know? You're not just getting up in the morning and running off to work or, or engaged in the usual sort of socialization processes. and. A friend of mine said a lot of people are being introduced to um, a relationship with themselves maybe for the first time. And I added, you know, they're not always going to like that encounter. So (laughs) enormous. I'm sure some people have regressed and some people have recognized, you know, um, I'm I'm not at home with myself here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm um, I'm I'm by myself and I'm not enjoying the company. So that's a tremendous big recognition. It's an invitation to personal growth and, again, the development of of an inner life whereby you're never fully alone when you have a connection to to that depth within yourself. I was surprised by that because when the virus hit, I remember having a conversation with my therapist and I was despairing a bit. And I said, oh, now no one's, you know, look, think about the Maslow hierarchy of needs. No one's going to be interested in personal development and getting in touch with their souls now. Everyone's just busy buying tissue paper. (laughs) (laughs) So hearing what you said, and potentially this could be a collective invitation for us to look in. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Yeah, it's the one relationship we have from beginning to end, and um, if that's a troubled relationship, all the other relationships are going to be troubled as well. Yeah, yeah. Just for my audience, I'm going to read out one more of your quotes, and then we will finish the conversation. And I, I just really love this. It's very similar to the one that I've just read. It says, we are not here to fit in, be well-balanced, or provide example for others. We are here to be eccentric, different, perhaps strange. Perhaps merely to add our small piece, our little clunky, chunky selves, to the great mosaic of being. As the gods intended, we are here to become more and more ourselves. What a relief. I can just be my clunky, chunky self, huh? That's right. You don't have to pretend and uh, you're not your persona. You know, mm. um, you're, you're embarked on a journey, a beginning in mystery, um, uh, ending in mystery, and along the way shrouded in mystery. So um, gives you plenty to reflect upon. Indeed. And uh, frankly, I, as I've often said to people, this is not about curing you. You're not a disease. It's, it's about making your conversation with yourself more interesting making your life more interesting, realizing every day something large is up for grabs. Mm. And if you recognize that, it's going to be a far more interesting life than you ever imagined. Thank you. It's, it's a really beautiful. Um, can you tell us where to find you and to discover more of your work, especially the new book that's coming out? Well, wherever, you know, bookstores <laughs> and Amazon and that sort of thing, you know, and, uh, so um, the, the virus has shut down some travel at this point, but I am doing some uh, Zoom-type programs and, and so forth, such as this. And uh, so life goes on, and I'm still seeing patients um, 
probably about 90% of my patients are I'm seeing by Zoom or, or um, phone or whatever. So yeah. uh, still busy. So. And I'll put your website link to the show notes. And the new book is called Living Between Worlds, Finding Personal Resilience in Changing Times. Fantastic. Thank you so, so, so much. You're you're welcome. It's a pleasure to meet you. And thank you for the interest. And I wish you well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. For more, please head to eggshelltherapy.com. There you will find more stories, articles, and resources for people just like me and you. Bye now. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Moving forwards, never looking back. Just one more foot in front of all those countless others. And we're there. Imagine.